Copy this. Big Thinking Local Climate Action. Water, water everywhere. As an island nation, the UK is often at the mercy of the power of water, whether it be from the sea or from rivers. We hear a lot about a once in a hundred year weather event, but now they don't, as you would imagine, just happen once every hundred years or so. They are much more frequent. The flooding in our towns and cities is both expensive and frightening. For coastal communities, rising sea levels caused by climate change are becoming a fact of life. So how can we deal with it? I'm Amanda Carpenter. And I'm Rick Casali, and we are your hosts for Copy This, a new podcast from Carbon Copy. Rick, we shouldn't keep talking about COP26, but one of the striking features for me is the really high profile and, and important presence of the small island states, the indigenous communities and the countries and communities who are on the front line of climate change, particularly rising sea levels. But I'm struck by the fact that climate change is really making itself felt here rather than just at the other side of the world. I mean, our recent name storms, Dudley, Eunice, Franklin, they brought huge disruption and destruction to thousands of people, particularly through flooding. So I guess that's why today's podcast is really important, because we're talking about living with water. Absolutely. And um, I think that's a really nice way to introduce our two guests today. We have Lee Pitcher, who is uh, Yorkshire Waters Head of Partnerships and the General Manager of Hull's Transformational Partnership, which is called Living with Water. And, and the vision is to turn Hull into an exemplar, resilient city. And we'll find out a little bit more about what that actually means. This partnership's already seen global success, with Hull being one of only a handful of cities worldwide that is pioneering the city water resilience framework. And again, it'd be nice to hear a bit more about what that is. Lee, welcome. Thanks, Rick. Yes, and uh, thanks, Amanda. Uh, yeah, really excited. It's, it's interesting when you when you give the uh, that little pre blurb about what we're all about. It, it sends a bit of shivers down the spine still because it's just it is just so exciting and what we've achieved already is amazing. But lots more to do, and I'm looking forward to talking to you about it with Andrew in a minute. Fantastic. Uh, as you just mentioned, Andrew Barron is our second guest, and he is a senior advisor in flood and coastal risk management for the Environment Agency. He's worked for the EA for almost 23 years uh, in Yorkshire and Lincolnshire, and he's currently the EA's lead advisor supporting the Living With Water Partnership. Thank you, and thank you very much for this invite. So perhaps uh, I'll leave it to either Lee or Andrew just to jump in. And can you set the stage for us? Uh, and I know the partnership's been around for some time, but can you go back to the beginning and, and explain who initiated it and why it came about in the first place? Yeah, of course. So if you think back to 2007, where we had the great floods, uh, particularly in Yorkshire, I mean, they affected the whole the whole country. And there was uh, lots of different estimates as to how much that, that cost, but something came out about £2 billion pounds, uh, of, uh, of damage that were, cost, uh, that, that were caused during those floods. But of course, it's not just about the financial damage it's the it's the mental health and uh, well-being damage that natural disasters of that magnitude cause really and after the 2007 floods there was the pit review which came out with a significant amount of recommendations but one of the big ones was around partnership working so from 2007 various agencies uh, water company the environment agency local authorities all went away uh, did significant amounts of work significant amounts of investment in 
extra pumping, bigger sewer capacity, work in the in the rivers, flood defences, and you know made a huge beneficial impact, uh, particularly in Hull um, and the East Riding. But actually, ten years on in 2017, when we stood and looked back, what we found is as much as we had reduced flood risk within the city of Hull, we were still in a position where it was the second biggest risk of catastrophic flooding in in the country, uh, only second to the Thames Estuary area. So it's almost loads of investment, loads of work. And yet, you know, when you look at us, we've still got this real risk in the city for for many residents. So it was a time to think, think differently and think differently, not just in terms of that partnership working, but also in terms of the, the external background as well. So if you think about climate change, you already mentioned it, Rick and Amanda, you know, it, it's just phenomenal what we're seeing now. Absolutely phenomenal. Lee, that's really interesting. But but you've just said that Hull is second after London in terms of, yeah. of its risk from flooding. Why is that? I mean, why is Hull so vulnerable? I mean, lots of people might not might not know Hull terribly well. So um, I have been. I think it's wonderful. I love the yeah. bridge and I love the statue in the station. But, but why is Hull so <laughs> vulnerable? I mean, what is it? Is it because where it lies geographically in the country? Is it because of the nature of the topography? What, what makes Hull the second most likely to flood city in the UK? Yeah, so, um, yeah, lots of facts and figures around this. But um, let, me, let me first of all visualise it for you. So Hull basically sits down in a bowl. Uh, it's almost like a bath. Uh, but without a plug, so you can't let the water out. So on the one side of Hull, you've got the the walls, which are the the big hills of the East Riding. Um, On the other side, you've got the built-up flood defences that keep out the Humber Estuary. And, you know, most people sit either at uh, sea level with the tide or below sea level. So kind of you could be sat there eating tea um, at dinner time and uh, while you're eating, the tide's above your head. You know, so it does sit right down. The only way that water can get out of that city pretty much is through pumping that water out. And that, of course, um, from a resilience point of view, isn't something that you just want to rely on all the time. So you want to be looking at different, more sustainable solutions. But Andrew, I mean, do you want to just talk about the, it's really different as well, isn't it? Just in terms of the various types of impacts that water can have on, on the city, because it's not just... I think you mentioned earlier, Amanda, seeing rivers, but it's not just seeing rivers in Hull. Uh, there's much more to it. So just to give you an idea of the scale of the, the issue, there's 112,000 homes in the Hull and Holton Price area at risk of some sort of flooding. So that flooding, as Lee alluded to, could either come from the Humber Estuary, the rivers, Hull sits at the confluence between the River Hull and the Humber, So all the water that falls on the agricultural land to the north has to squeeze its way through Hull. And as Lee said, most of the city and the adjacent urban areas sit below the water level. So any water, so you've got those two risks. Any water that falls on the city, the only way it gets out of the city, as Lee said, is pumped through the sewer system. So the water that falls on people's roads and roofs goes into the sewer system and then has to be pumped out into the city, out of the city into the Humber. And then we have um, the walls in um, Yorkshire, that's a chalk, and the water that falls on that chalk seeps its way through and some of that comes through into the western part of the city 
And once again, the, the drainage system, the sewer system has to get that out. So there's all those multiple sources impacting on those tens of thousands of homes. And of course, just as important businesses as well. So there's some significant businesses in the city that are reliant on a flood defence system and managing water um, to, to carry on. So given that topography and just the nature of this basin, um, you know, Lee, you mentioned earlier that, you know, after 10 years of investment and looking at the challenges, you still realise that Hull is one of the most vulnerable cities in the whole of the UK. So how on earth can you go about trying to address that environment in which Hull is based? What, what can you do differently? Well, and that, and that is exactly um, exactly how Living Water came about, actually. So 10 years, 10 years on from those, uh, those great floods, we stood back and said, we need to do something different. Climate change is significant. Uh, flooding is becoming much more, uh, well, wet, big wet weather events becoming even more and more common. And therefore, we had 40 or so people uh, over at the deep in Hull, which is obviously the big aquarium area. And uh, those are people from all across, the, all across the world, actually, globally, specialists in uh, academia, engineering, landscaping. And we said, right, what, what is it that we need to do that's different? What is it that we need to do? And from those three days of very, very intense working together, we came up with about 200 or so new ideas. And those ideas weren't just about infrastructure um, and the kind of infrastructure that we've done in the past. So big civil engineering, so big grey engineering of building big, bigger tanks or bigger pumping stations, bigger sewer systems. It was about blue-green engineering. So how do we start to work with the landscape in the urban environment of Hull um, and thinking about uh, how you create small wetlands, ponds, how you soak up water within the city, green roofs, what you can do at a household level, but right back up in the catchment as well in terms of soaking up water in agricultural places like farms or in the in the wolds itself and, and other places like that. So there was a big piece around infrastructure, but it weren't just that. What we said was we need to also think about the future here because we're never going to break that cycle um, unless we think really differently. So it was also about how we educate, how we give children and, and, and people, residents, businesses, tools and techniques to be able to manage and live and cope with water. How do we aspire people in the future to want to take up new roles new jobs in blue-green engineering? How do, you, how do you create that aspiration within the city um, and skills? We also had projects around policy. How do you start to work with developers to um, facilitate them thinking differently, having a different mindset about the new houses and homes that they build and the kind of homes that they build? So from, from those sort of 200 ideas, we narrowed that right down. Um, and I guess... Live With Water was about how we embrace um, five key areas. One was how we reduce flood risk in the city, how we build community resilience, how we improve place in doing that, because obviously Hull is one of those places that is it's had significant amounts of investment in the public realm, but there's so much more we can do to just improve the look, the feel of the place. So it's a place you want to come live and work. And water is an amazing feature that can do that um, if if used in the right way. Um, so improve place, how do we um, 
also regenerate the economy for that local area by doing that work, um, which is where jobs and skills come into that. And then finally, how do we share that knowledge? So how do we use Hull as a living lab um, for a blue-green city of the future, an urban meadow of the future, and then share that knowledge so other people can use that too? So that was the, the premise of, of, of what we wanted to do. And, and I guess the key part of that, Andrew, is, is around co-creation, isn't it? And, and how we work with, with residents and communities to co-create that together so it's more sustainable. Absolutely. And, you know, every every day, and this is what I really love about my job, is it's moving. I'm a civil engineer. I like the concrete and the steel. But we are moving, as Lee says, we've got to make that big difference um, and move across to resilience. And, and, that's, and, and we saw the devastation that the 2007 floods impacted on Hull. It was awful. And making people more resilient to, to sort of bounce back and it had not have such an impact. I had work colleagues who houses, whose houses were flooded and it meant they were out of those houses for over a year in some cases, but you can replace kitchens, you can replace carpets, etc. But it was things, the memories as one of my colleagues, she lost all her wedding photos because they were in the lounge at the time and they were just, just completely wiped out. So it's, and that resilience comes in terms of doing things to property, but also education. Lee and I had a fantastic um, day last week where we, in the council chambers at um, the Hall Guild Hall, we had about 50 or 60 young people in the uh, Young People's Parliament. And it was trying to get um, a conversation going with those young people who are the future of the city to be able to say, right, how, how, how should we be doing this? How should we be shaping and, and managing water so that the whole area is so much better for yourselves? So, you know, that's just one example. And, and daily, the Living With Water Partnership is implementing what the, those five points at least talked about. And they don't go off as individuals. They go together as, as sort of five key points that every day is being put into action. I'm really interested in what you're both saying. And I, and I love the concept of this living with water and creating resilience. But, but part of me is asking that really stupid question, which is, why are we continuing to fight a battle that we're probably not going to win if we're having to shore up defences in such a way to prevent the water coming into the city? I mean, there's nowhere for that water to go. I mean, shouldn't you talked about buildings specifically, Lee, and new homes? Shouldn't we be saying, actually, we need to live differently in this space or maybe in a different bit of space? I mean, is it, is it, that, is it possible to protect a city and live with the threat of a flood like that? And, and is it not more sensible for people to say, well, actually, we need to, you know, either put all our homes on stilts or we need to move or we need to move higher to higher ground or, you know, I'm just curious as to why, because it seems to me to be an almost irre irreconcilable tension between the fact that we know the flooding is going to get worse as the sea levels rise, for example, and yet you, you're you asking people to put their homes and their livelihoods potentially at risk, however resilient they are, Andrew, they'll still be at risk, won't they? Yeah, so I suppose that's what it's about, isn't it? So living with water is, is called that for, that for that reason, really, Amanda. So, it is about it's about reducing flood risk, but it is about showing people how you can live with water. And you know, you see that across the world, don't you? We see that in Europe, in, in many of the Scandinavian countries, how they've they've really learned to live with water. We see that in uh, many of the uh, Southeast Asian countries as well, actually. So, yes, water is a threat, but the way that we like to think about it and the mindset that we've got is how do you how do you turn 
the presence of water. So too much water or too little water. And we know that that's the, that, you know, that's the biggest the biggest risk to an economy is having too much or too little water at any one time. So from the work that we've done with the Rockefeller Foundation uh, and the resilient cities that they work with across the world, we know that's the biggest shock or stress. And what we, what we do is try to change that mindset to say, actually, we don't need to see this as a threat. How do we see it as an opportunity? So how do we ensure that actually that water, if there's too much at any one time, goes into places that it can actually move to and move to quite safely without causing any, any harm um, to property or to people, but actually it becomes a bit of a feature for the area as well. So, and that's when you start to think about, well, how do you open channels um, to allow water to flow quite nicely through the natural urban landscape or, or, or back up in the catchment? How do you create ponds that um, people want to live around because they, they look pretty, they're places that you can go and escape, the, you know, everyday life uh, from a mental health point of view and have walks with your dogs and so on and and I don't know when you when you imagine little villages or urban spaces with lots of lots of water features um, and lots of green area um, as well so little tiny urban forests mini meadows all of those sorts of things it just becomes a place that's really pleasing where you want to live and want to work so so my view is yes you can do it it's not saying you can do overnight you know it is about how we work with nature going forwards and, and just think differently. And yes, some of that is around innovation and how we think about properties as well in the future. And you talked about properties there on stilts. Um, but, you know, there's there's lots of stuff out there around floating homes and uh, that, that move with water as it comes in. There's stuff around uh, houses that can be, you know, lifted up as well. There's lots of stuff around that. But for me, there's many parts to the puzzle and we need to work on each of those parts in order to, to create the bigger, the bigger solution. You're listening to Copy This, a podcast about working together on big thinking local climate action. Lee, can I just pick up on you know, this point about, you know, um, almost jokingly putting houses on stilts and Andrew, yep. your point about, and we see this in the news all the time, about the devastation of people being flooded out of their homes and all their possessions being ruined. Can you give us a description of what it looks like more practically? There's obviously new build opportunities that are very different, but can you do anything to retrofit or is it all basically that's a given and it's trying to channel the water around the homes? So so two examples. One is building new properties. and We had a great example a few years ago where there was a community impacted by flooding and there were some older properties that were flooded in the devastation. You can see the skips with, unfortunately, there were only possessions in those skips. But actually, some newer properties being built in that same community. And because their floor levels were a few hundred millimetres higher, that was enough that um, they were able to stay in their homes throughout the floods and their homes weren't affected. Um, so that's the new build, and that's um, what the Environment Agency, with its guidance to developers and working in partnership with the local authorities, are requiring new build developments within the city and the adjacent areas of East, East Yorkshire to, to be implemented. So those new build measures, that's that works, and it's proven, and I've seen it in action. In terms of retrospect, um, retrofitting, um, there's a lot that you can do to a property, one of the problems is um, 
1930s property like I, I live in tends to be suspended wooden floorboards. What we'd recommend in floodplain areas is actually to have those removed and replaced with concrete floors. That stops the water coming up. Um, there's devices that can be fitted to air bricks to stop um, water coming in there. Non-return valves to your know, water pipes to stop backup of, of systems. And, and that's another of the, the five aspects that we're looking to promote in the Living With Water partnership is the skill sets because across the country there isn't that skill set of people with the skills to be able to um, implement those. So as, as Lee said, what we want um, the Living With Water partnership area to become is that living lab of skilled people who have gone through technical colleges, um, people that are looking to design these through yeah, working with the universities and, and schools, colleges, all the way through to it actually producing jobs within the area that can deliver those facilities to, to people in flood-prone areas. Because this isn't just a Hull problem, is it? This is a problem that, I mean, you talked about the Rockefeller Resilient Cities project, and, and mm. I seem to remember, you know, that something like 90% of the world's population live in coastal communities or something I mean it's, the figure is enormous isn't it and so this is a problem that's going on all over the world but presumably all over the UK as well there are areas that are prone to flooding and when we saw flooding as a result of the recent storms that I mentioned but but lots of areas are prone to flooding so so what you're learning I guess in 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 Hull is is, is stuff that can be replicated for all areas even if they're not below sea level even if they're just at risk of water off the land, presumably. I mean, because flooding is going to increase, isn't it, as climate change affects our weather and we have more extreme, instant weather events where, you know, horrible term, you know, happen if storms, let's call them storms, we have a lot of water coming down very quickly. That can create flash flooding, which presumably has a very similar effect. So it's about learning from from your experience, I suppose. Oh, it most definitely is. You know, it, it's um, flooding is the is the most recorded natural disaster now in the in the world um, according to the world disasters report so it is happening more and more frequently and yes it is it is everywhere globally um, and and here in here in the uk too so there is a there is a lot of learning i mean the reason the reason why i'm so passionate about it and we've we've talked about the devastation i was i was um i was homeless as a child you know for a period of time so one day i had a house uh, and a home and the next day i had nothing and all I wanted at that stage was for somebody to to help, and I didn't care who that was. I just wanted somebody to help um, in in a few ways. One, just help help us through that situation, but also just to help us in terms of giving me the the tools, the techniques to be able to help myself and help my family. And it, uh, you just feel isolated and you feel lost. And the reason I got into flooding is because I've seen firsthand in 2007 when I visited caravans and people that had lost their homes, how how difficult that was. So a big part of the, the, the learning here is, is that education piece, Amanda. It's so important. And, um, and coming back to retrofitting, for example, and, and being able to do stuff in your ho- own home, um, we've, we've created Living With Water Key Stage 1, Key Stage 2 lessons where we go into schools as part of the curriculum for PSHRE. We teach children about what they can do in their own homes, how they can build their own flood plans, flood emergency plans, because I just find it absolutely unbelievable that and my children have, have done this. They go to school, um, primary school, and they learn how to build a fire plan for your house. So what would you do in the event of a fire? But in the, in the, in the country's second biggest city, most at risk to catastrophic flooding you know 
they don't they haven't built flood plans and that should be a, for me a fundamental part of the curriculum but how do you stop that being frightening you talked about the experience of losing your home which must have been absolutely horrific and the thing that we all dread for our families and our children particularly yeah. how do you stop that from being scary for young people they've got to think oh i've got to build a plan if this is a disaster strikes this is what i do you know how do you make that balance between giving them the skills and equipping them not just children i mean all of the citizens in your community and frightening the living daylights out of them so children are just different aren't they because they've 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 had a different life experience until that until the age that we've that we've seen and to be honest what we find is when we when we engage with children their passion is unbelievable absolutely unbelievable their learn their ability to learn is unbelievable and they want to share that learning so actually by teaching them something new and uh, talking to them about their own home and what they can do they just love coming up with new creative ideas but also understanding how they can take them back to their parents or their guardians um, their, their grandma granddads uh, particularly if their grandma and granddads have been flooded because they like to to share how that can not happen again if you were to do things so they learn everything that's really exciting and practical Uh, from everything from how you can put water butts in your house and and collect the water during rainfall so they feel like they're part of the solution, Uh, right the way through to how you can build vegetable areas in the garden uh, that will soak up the water as well during heavy rainfall, Um, little ponds, and they absolutely love it. So you never really get, you never really hear or get that fear factor from the children. They, They kind of embrace it and want to do something about it. Um, so, yeah, so the, the, the approach, though, is co-creating that with them. So thinking about their house, thinking about the various solutions, showing them what they look like and then building that picture with them. And, uh, yeah, it, it just works. It just works. What they then do, though, at the school, and this is the exciting bit, is that quite often the school then looks at what they can do within the school. So they start to implement some of those things in the in the school playgrounds, so you can see that concrete turn into green areas. You can see the downpipes that are being connected into uh, various planters, um, which I prefer to water butts actually, because I think they just look much nicer and, uh, uh, and they're great for carbon sequestration as well because you're growing plants as opposed to just collecting water. But um, yeah, uh, and that again is another, it kind of re-emphasizes the importance and, and the difference it can make to, to collect the water and do something yourself. Andrew, um, just kind of building on Lee's point, we spoke about the kids and how often, you know, they are super engaged and it's more an opportunity to be creative and come up with solutions rather than necessarily be fearful. But for other members of the community, how do you go about like, this co-creation? How do you get them on side and, and reassure them that, you know, these once in a hundred year events that are happening much more frequently, that they are able to cope and to Lee's point that there is help. There is help there. I think because, Resilience is a bit of a buzzword. And what do we actually mean? Well, we really mean that when you're in need, there is a network around you. You know what to do. You know who to turn to. And I get the feeling that this is what the partnership is bringing to the fore. So how do you get communities to be a key part of this? It's multifunctional. And the Living With Water Partnership's done some amazing things. At the moment, we're actually sitting within communities, talking to them about the ideas that we have for their communities, but also getting that feedback from them and their ideas. Because as we said to the Youth Parliament last week, we may have some good ideas, but people out there, they they have some fantastic ideas that we haven't even thought of. And well, wow, you know, where did that come from? Why didn't we think of that? Great, thanks very much. So it is very, very um, two-way, linked to 
existing flooding and, and future flooding and how we might want to do things, but let's have a conversation about the art of the possible. And as Lee's talked about, it's not only flooding, it's looking at enhancing as well the communities um, so it's a better place to live and, and work in so that it's not just heavy engineering. Let's make the place a greener place, a more exciting place. As we've seen through COVID, I think people have really appreciated being able to have a walk um, for mental health um, and well-being. And just I've just walked around the block at lunchtime. Wasn't it great just to get a bit of sunshine and, and smell a few flowers? And that's what we really want to do is it just not being a plain green patch that we're using to store water. It's a vibrant um, patch with flowers and all sorts of natural interests there, bringing the wildlife. So we're doing it that way. But Lee, I don't know if you want to talk about some of the innovative ideas that we did sort of at the launch of Living With Water Partnership. Yeah, no, we've done we've done lots of things, really. So I think the first thing is you need to build trust with your communities. And quite often, if you are seen as a big organisation or a big authority, you're not necessarily seen as sort of that human face. Um, so one of the big things that we've done with Living with Water is to start to really build that that trust in relationship, and we've done that in a number of, in a number of ways. So um, the, the fact that we we're not seen as Yorkshire Water, the Environment Agency, uh, East Riding, whole city council, but we're seen as a collective Living with Water entity. That in itself has made a huge difference. We're seen as one voice and actually is, is really important as well because when we're talking about managing water, no one cares who whose bit of water that is. They just don't want that in their homes. Mm. And therefore our mindset, because we're called Living with Water, is as one and as one team. And that in itself just uh, almost breaks down those barriers straight away. Are you unique in that, Lee? Is that happening anywhere else in the country? Because I think that, you know, and I would say this to Andrew, but recently the poor old Environment Agency, as always, gets a bit of a pasting whenever there's a flood, isn't it? Everyone goes around saying they didn't tell us and they are not doing enough. And But, but you know, obviously they're doing huge amounts of work behind the scenes that most people never even know about. But are you unique in having that kind of, you know, community sort of connectivity and cohesion around this? Because because you're right, it's agencies and, and government agencies particularly that people say, oh, it's them, you know, and it's the water board. They don't know, no such thing exists anymore. So, There's a lot of prejudice, isn't there, and preconceived notions about some of those organisations. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's partnerships exist, as you can imagine, right the way across, across the country. Um, but, yeah, there's none that I know that are as forward in their development as we are particularly around that working with our communities to co-create at the moment. So yes, there are pockets in lots of places, but it does feel really different in terms of what we're doing in, in the Hull and the East Riding. And, and you know, that's been recognised by the British Quality Foundation fairly fairly recently as well in, in that I think we were named the best collaborative partnership in the UK. So so yeah, well so we've done. got some external recognition mm. of that. Yeah, I'm chuffed with that. I had to, yeah. I had to get that in as well. So, <laughs> Hull is but, a very creative place, though, isn't it? I mean, it, oh, it, you know you know, it it's is, a very creative place. You've got a huge creative yeah. cultural centre, and you seem to have a huge amount of kind of energy and imagination across your community. Maybe that's because you're right at the, you know, the very edge, and 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 perhaps well, partly under threat some of the times. Do you know what you've hit the now? You come and join the team, Amanda. To be honest, because um, yeah, so so what we know in Hull is people. It is a big cultural, you know, a big cultural city. 2017, it was the city of culture. Amazing history of leaders. William Wilberforce, who obviously started the abolition of slavery. It is a fantastic place. But actually what it is, is a place where communities 
um, where there's not a lot of money in many places, but the communities that are passionate and love to come out and they love to come out together and they love to talk and they love to celebrate and they love to experience different things. So one of the ways that we've engaged um, to start Living with Water was to think about how we got people out to just be able to talk to us one-to-one because people love to talk. So we've had great things like the Ultimate, which was the first ever um, water-related obstacle course through a city centre. So we used big sewer pipes that uh, people and children and adults went through. Um, All of the features were were water-based. But what it did, it showcased the city. And because people love their city, they came out in their droves. So we had tens of thousands of people taking part in that. But what we did was we used the whole volunteers from the City of Culture. We'd done some masterclasses with them. We taught them about flooding and flood resilience. And so while they was around the course, they talked to people about that um, and so on. We've worked with organisations like Absolutely Cultured, who only recently put on floodlights which was a big artistic exhibition right the way across the city where lights were projected on different walls in the city, but they had that maritime flavour to them. They gave messages. There was sort of narration over the top about flooding and people's experiences. But again, another opportunity to bring people out and talk about what we try to achieve in the city and what we can do together. And actually the response to that sort of stuff is just it's just phenomenal. So, um, yeah, so using arts and culture is, a, is another way that we've, uh, we've really engaged differently. Hugely tempted to quote the Philip Larkin water poem there, but I'm not going to. <laughs> Rick? I'd just like to ask Andrew, you know, because clearly there's so much going on with Hull and Hull is definitely the forefront in a lot of areas. But for other people listening in other areas, what would you say are a couple of the tips? What are some of the most common pieces of advice that you give to other areas in terms of what they can do either differently, what they can stop doing or start doing, what would you say? I think at the individual level, it's understand your risk and take appropriate actions, whether that be um, be prepared for flooding and think about what would happen if your property was just about to flood. Make make sure your possessions are out of the way. Make sure you have a, a, a grab bag so that you have all the vital information and available if you need to move it from your house. Um, try where possible to make your house as resilient as possible. And we talked about many of the things that you can do. And the Environment Agency provides a, a flood warning service. Um, make sure you signed up for that flood warning service because the more warning you can get, the more able you are to be prepared. Um, And then sort of at a corporate and um, sort of local authority level, it's we were doing working together, living with water partnership, formalise that. But at a local officer and technical officer level, we were working on quite regularly um, understanding what people, each party was trying to achieve. And I think that's really just been strengthened by the living with water partnership being formalised is you don't have to have a living with water partnership to work in partnership and manage water. So that's what I'd I'd say is go for it, start doing it. Don't wait for um, the living with water partnership in your area, albeit fantastic if you can get there. Start just working together and managing water in the best way you can. And I believe, having worked around the country, that that's actually going on anyway. Um, but it comes down to a willingness between um, local authorities, water companies and the environment agencies to do that at a local level, at an area level, at a national level. And I, I believe it's going on, but hey, let's try and do better as well. 
And I think for me, one of the biggest takeaways from listening to the two of you is around the opportunity of turning something which uh, comes across as quite threatening and a challenge into an opportunity and how it's really interesting the mix of different people you have within that partnership and how also I hear very much that community is a co-creator as opposed to something that is done to them at mm-hmm. the end of the process. So I think it's really fascinating. We could just go on and on, but unfortunately we're running mm-hmm. out of time. So I'd like to thank you both, Lee and Andrew, for sharing a bit, just a bit of a taster about thank what living with water uh, is all about. Uh, thank you so much, Rick and Amanda. Any opportunity to be able to, to, to share what we do with Living Water is great. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been most enjoyable sharing with you and the Living with Water partnership and what we're doing in the whole Holton Price area. It's been, uh, it's been very uplifting. And of course, I'd like to thank you, our listeners, for joining us. Bye for now. For more information about today's episode, check out carboncopy.eco forward slash copy this. Join in the conversation by following us on Twitter and using the hashtag copy this pod. Until next time.